0: Thank you, David, and good evening, everyone. It's really good to be with you. Um, can I apologize once again for having to sit surrounded by 15 tons of steel scaffolding? Those of you over 35 probably think you're on the set of some dark dystopian film set. Those of you who are millennials just think you're sitting in town square at the corner of Botanic. <laughs> if you've ever had to endure my sermons before, and sometimes it can feel like watching paint dry, but tonight you literally can watch paint dry. This this Sunday, we're beginning a new series of Bible teaching, as David has outlined. In fact, we're actually at the start of a a new two-year cycle uh, of teaching for the church. About six months ago, the elders met with the committee that plans all our teaching, and we asked ourselves what the big themes should be for the incoming uh, couple of years. And the main idea we kept coming back to was this idea of what we called quiet confidence. And so let me begin by explaining what we mean by that term. I don't know if you've ever watched an old sitcom uh, called Dad's Army. Uh, it has recently been blamed for causing Brexit, believe it or not, because it describes how Britain survived its darkest hour in 1940 uh, while Hitler's armies massed on the other side of the channel. And one of the characters in that sitcom was a, a Scotsman called Fraser, and he was a wild-eyed man whose favourite catchphrase was, we're doomed, we're all doomed. And I think there's a little bit of Corporal or private Fraser uh, in every citizen in Northern Ireland. We have within us this tendency to think that we're doomed. That the world has gone to pot and there's nothing to be done but to wait for the return of Christ. And there's no doubt that the old comforting world that I grew up in has uh, been dismantled. The young people in this room will raise their children in a post-Christian society. It'd be very easy for us to adopt the Fraser approach to Bible teaching. Some of us older folk may even find that strangely comforting. But it would not prepare the upcoming generation for life in a world that has rejected the Christian worldview. So what should our approach be? Well, first of all, we shouldn't run away and hide. But nor should we wait in the darkness with fixed bayonets waiting for the enemy to turn up. No, we should live our lives with quiet confidence. In other words, we should be quietly confident that the truth about the way to live will win the day. Because only truth stands. I don't mean that we should be smug or feel superior. I mean that we shouldn't be ashamed of the Christian approach to life. The argument I'm going to make tonight is that the Christian approach to living is the most positive and the sanest approach to life. And if you become convinced of that truth, then you can live in a pagan world with quiet confidence. So in our study tonight, I intend to explain the big idea, the big principle that lies at the heart of Christian living. And then, once we understand that principle, we're going to consider three case studies uh, from Scripture, which illustrate how real people uh, were rescued by accepting that big principle. Okay, so one big principle and three case studies. So let's get underway, and we're going to read the very first Psalm together. Psalm number one. If you have a pew Bible, uh, it's page four four eight. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Now, we could profitably spend our time going through every phrase in that beautifully crafted poem. Uh, it begins with the word blessed. It ends with the word perish. Perish. And the six verses break it down into three sections, pretty obviously. Uh, the first couple of verses, we find two sources of belief. Then in verses 3 and 4, two lifestyles. And then in the last two verses, two destinations. But for our purposes tonight, I simply want to focus your attention on two contrasting pictures. In verse 3, the person who lives wisely, who lives well, is described as being like a tree planted by streams of water. That yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. That is a lovely picture of a well-ordered life, isn't it? A well-lived life, rooted, stable, fruitful, and healthy. And the psalmist sets this lovely picture up against a much darker picture. He talks to people who are like chaff. Just in case you're not familiar with that term, chaff, it's the useless husk uh, that's the byproduct of threshing wheat. So the the psalmist describes a well-lived life as a strong, fruitful tree, a creation that draws into itself the precious resources that nourish its inner life. But then the foolish life is described as chaff, because chaff is ephemeral, inconsequential, just blown about by random forces of nature. Some years ago, I preached on this psalm in a church uh, many miles from here. And afterwards, I was talking to a group of friends over a cup of tea, and when a man in his 60s came over and introduced himself to me. And he told me that he had uh, enjoyed what I had said, even though he was an atheist. I discovered that he was an academic, a man who spent his life studying literature. And suddenly, without any warning, the man started to cry. I am chaff, he said to me. He had suddenly seen his life to be like a piece of chaff. It was a hollow husk, to use the man's own phrase. The contrast between those two pictures illustrates the big idea here, the big principle that lies at the heart of the Christian approach to life. Now, I must warn you that this principle runs counter to everything that you will encounter in the culture that we live in. The biblical view of humanity is introduced to us um, in the Bible before God even creates humanity in Genesis 1. We're told that the sun was created to regulate the earth's movement and life, and we all take that for granted. All the energy we need to survive in this planet comes from the sun. Switch the sun off, and we would all die in an instant. It's quite a curious feature of how the universe has been set up, isn't it? We are dependent on an outside source for light and heat. Why couldn't the earth have its own power source? Why must we draw our resources from an external source? That elementary bit of cosmology uh, illustrates a really profound idea. The Bible teaches that humans are not self-existent, self-sufficient, or self-defining. They do not create themselves. They're finite, dependent, contingent beings. Think again of that fruitful, stable, healthy tree. It drew its resources from the stream and from the soil through its root system. It didn't have the resources to live within itself. If you had uprooted the tree, it would have slowly died and rotted away. Its health and fruitfulness would have been destroyed. And the Bible says that human beings are designed a bit like that tree. We were designed to draw the moral and the spiritual resources we need to live from the outside. They don't exist within us. And the source of all that goodness, that nourishment for the soul, is God himself. So when we cut ourselves off from God and the source of spiritual nourishment and moral life, we end up like chaff. We might argue that chaff is more free than a tree, but that's the freedom of an ephemeral, inconsequential thing blown about by the wind. So here's the big principle. Trees were designed to be planted in the ground. They were designed to draw nourishment into themselves from streams and the soil, so that they could live fruitful and productive lives. Trees are really only only trees when the design plan for trees is followed. And the same principle applies to us, to humans. The Bible says we have a design plan. And human flourishing is maximized when we live according to the design plan for humans. So if you want to live a rooted, stable, fruitful, healthy life, you should live according to your design plan. That's the big principle. And now perhaps you can see why this idea is so counter-cultural. We live in a society which celebrates a completely different type of freedom. I could call it chaff freedom if I wanted. Um, uh, But it might be more technical. In a more technical language, we might call it autonomy. I remember once listening to a father uh, talk about his 20-year-old daughter. She had been raised in a Christian home. She had made a childhood profession of faith. But when she was 18... She decided to go to a liberal university, is there any other type, uh, in a different country from here. Because, she told her dad, it was time for her to reinvent herself. Her friendship circle is now mainly formed by members of the LGBT community. She exults in her newfound freedom, having broken out of the straitjacket of Christianity. Her father observed that all his daughter's friends tell the same story. It's the story of a personal journey from the restrictions and privations of society and social conventions to the glorious freedom of personal autonomy. Just in case you're not familiar with that term, autonomy, it's it's that radical type of freedom which says, I can be whatever I want to be. It's even deeper than saying I can do whatever I want to do. It says I can be whatever I want to be. No one, not even God, has the right to thwart my journey to a self-created identity. Now, the difference between those two types of freedom might be hard for you uh, to grasp. A couple of years ago, I tried to explain the difference to a group of 20-year-olds by telling them a children's story. I made it up myself. At first, I was rather proud of it. But from the audience feedback, I realized that it was not, in fact, any good at all. Nonetheless, provided you're all sitting comfortably, let me begin. My story, Boys and Girls, is about a tiger called Tony. Tony the tiger was a magnificent creature. He was nearly 12 feet of muscle and claw. Black vertical stripes were set against the background of his orange-red fur. Everyone in the forest was a little bit afraid of Tony. He could run faster, fight more ferociously than anyone else in the land. Tony didn't have many friends. Like all tigers, he hunted alone. But over the years, Tony had struck up an odd friendship with an old monkey called Coco. That's Coco with a K, apparently. And one day it struck Coco that Tony had been absent for many weeks. So she studied the signs on the jungle floor and followed them to a camp. And this camp had been set up by humans. And they had brought all sorts of noisy machines uh, that they used to attack the trees. And in one corner of the camp, Coco spied a cage. Taking care to avoid the lights, she crept up to the cage and found Tony the tiger sitting inside. You're really getting into this anyway, aren't you? He was slumped on the ground. The fire had gone out of his eyes. The cage was hardly big enough for him to stand up in, so he just lay down feeling hopeless. Well, Coco's clever fingers got to work on the latch. Soon the door sprang open, and with one bound, Tony was free. A guard standing on the edge of the camp turned round at the sound of heady, padded feet, but it was too late. His skull was crushed like a water No, I think we better recalibrate the violence level in this story. Um, the guard screamed, dropped a cigarette, and ran away. <coughs> Tony sailed over the fence, disappeared into the jungle. Now he could live the life that he had been bent to live. Once again his eyes burned brightly, he was free. Let me just break off for a moment and get you to think about freedom at the moment and boundaries that seem to restrict freedom. Some boundaries are clearly wrong. Tony the Tiger was diminished as a creature when he was confined to that cruel cage. On a more substantive level, we can think of that cold December 9th in 1955 when a black woman called Rosa Parks traveled home on a bus that had segregated seating for people of color. With quiet dignity, she refused to obey such a wicked restriction on her freedom. Arrested, fined $10, she started a revolution that brings gladness into the heart of every right-minded person. So, of course, some, indeed many, boundaries are morally wrong. But we shouldn't, therefore, conclude that all boundaries are wrong. If freedom is defined not as minimizing constraints, but as the maximizing of human flourishing, then some boundaries might actually be good. Anyway, back to our story. Sometime after his escape from the cage, Coco the monkey met up again with Tony. She had expected him to be full of energy and happiness, but in fact he was in a terrible state. Are you in pain, Tony? Coco asked. Tony said nothing but walked out into the clearing so that he could be seen in the bright moonlight. Coco gasped. Tiger's sides were terribly wounded. His fur was almost gone. His stripes were covered in blood. Who did this to you? Coco demanded. Who committed this act of wickedness? There was a long pause. I did, said Tony. I have been rubbing myself up against trees and rocks for weeks now. Why would you do such a thing? Asked his friend. Well, said Tony, I met some other humans. Not the loggers in the camp. These ones lived on the left of the jungle. They told me that if I ever was to be truly free, I had to escape from being a tiger. I had to become whatever I wanted to become. So I've been trying to get rid of my stripes so that I don't have to be a tiger. Coco led the tiger down a moonlit pool and there washed the blood from the creature's flanks. And she said, Tony, you are a stupid creature. I risked my life in that camp so that you could live as a tiger, free to roam all around the jungle. But this, and she gestured to his wounds, this isn't freedom. This is making you less tigerish. And that isn't freedom. God made you a tiger, Tony. He defined your identity when he created you. And he wants you to be free to be as tigerish as you can be. Tigers are only truly free when they are living like tigers. Now My short meteoric career as a children's author is over. But I hope you get the point. There are boundaries for living laid out in the Bible. So sexual relationships are confined to the covenant of marriage, for example. But those boundaries aren't arbitrary restrictions designed to oppress you. You are at your most human. You are most humanish when you live according to the design plan for humans. Throw away the design plan and you just end up hurting yourself and those around you. So that was the big principle. Let's now take three short case studies that will help us see how real people uh, learnt that principle. And so if you have a Bible, turn first of all to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5, we'll start at verse 1. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. What's up there? It may surprise you to know that some atheist writers use this story of the demoniac uh, to explain what they call the postmodern soul. See, at first sight, this story seems completely alien to us. But it's an electrifying picture of a truly chaotic life. Society had tried to shackle the man, but he had broken all their constraints. His personality is so destroyed, so dead, that he's already roaming naked among the tombs. But the real damage has been done on the inside. Did you notice that? My name is Legion, for we are many. My singular, we are many. Those words describe an entirely fragmented personality. Breaking the chains put on him by society did nothing because he was enslaved within. He had been reduced to a shell at the mercy of dark spiritual forces. I wonder how you might have reacted if you had met that man. (laughs) For me, he would have been an object of fear and horror. But now watch Christ stand quietly as the demoniac rushes at him. He recognized that Christ had authority, but his mind is so twisted that he thinks Jesus is going to use that authority to torture him, to torment him. I'm sure you've met people who react in that same instinctive way when they even come close to a conversation about God's authority over their lives. But now watch and listen as Christ speaks. He says such a simple thing, but it is beautiful. What is your name, he asks. In that moment, we see Christ recognize the inherent dignity and value of every human being. You see, Christianity has such a high view of what it means to be human. The Bible says that you are a magnificent, rational, moral, spiritual creature of gender made in the image of God. You have a soul that will last forever. You are an soul body and an embodied soul. You are an integrated person, body, soul, and spirit. So when Christ asks this damaged wreck of a human being, what is your name? We are listening to a person talking to another person. And somehow, that simple question got through to the last vestiges of humanity left inside the demoniac's shattered personality. Then Christ uses all his divine authority to free the man from his demonic slave masters. And that shows us that Christ only uses his authority and power for the benefit of others and not for himself. A few verses later, we see the man sitting at Jesus' feet, washed, dressed, and in his right mind. A chaotic life had become ordered once again. Now, this is the gospel to a culture that worships autonomy. God does not use his authority to imprison you. He uses it to free you to live the life you were designed to live. Autonomy just leads to chaos. But biblical freedom leads to the beauty of an ordered life. The gospel opens up the possibility of living in the beauty of an ordered life. Many years ago, a young man asked to speak with me. He had fallen into the moral chaos of the gay scene in New York. He had not known what it meant to have an intimate, stable relationship with either of his parents. And at a moment that he later came to regret, he had taken refuge in the LGBT community. I talked and I listened to him, and hopefully some of the things I said to him were helpful. But the best thing I did was to have him invited out to a Sunday lunch by a Christian family. He saw the beauty and the order of a Christian home. He saw stability and harmony, a place of acceptance and mutual encouragement. Loving relationships untainted by sexualization or the abuse of power. So Christian parents, as you raise your children in a home that operates according to God's design plan, you can have quiet confidence that you are maximizing your children's ability to flourish. For our second case study, let's move to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8. We're going to break into verse 42. Pew Bible 866. As Jesus went and people pressed around him, there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living in physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowd surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling, and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her daughter, Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. In the culture in which she lived, uh, this woman had a debilitating and humiliating condition. If it had been commonly known, she would certainly never have been allowed to socialize uh, or frequent polite society. She had a terrible secret. She spent a lot of money on various doctors trying to get healing from her affliction. I detect a slightly sarcastic tone in Luke's words in verse 43. Quack doctors have drained this woman of all her investments but had done nothing for her. It's been nice experience that women in particular empathize with this lady for one overriding reason. She was embarrassed. Embarrassment can be terrifying for all of us, but perhaps women are more afraid of it than men. Anyway, the woman is so embarrassed that she decides simply to touch the hem of Jesus' garment. And when she does, she is healed. Oh, thank you, God, I have been healed and now no one will ever know that I had the condition. All will be well. Well, not quite. Now, what our Lord does next might seem psychologically brutal. He almost forces the woman to give her testimony in front of a crowd of strangers. But the Lord Jesus, you see, is still healing her. This woman didn't just need to be healed of a physical condition. She needed to be healed of something much deeper, the desire to project a perfect life. So he changed her story. He banished, banished the crippling fear inside her by changing her life story. From now on, she was the woman that Jesus healed. A sociologist once wrote about Generation Z and he talked about the chronic anxiety of a performance-driven life. It begins very early for young women who are under intense pressure to have an Instagram face. Instagram eyebrows, whatever on earth that is. But increasingly, young men are feeling the need to project a perfect body image as well. Men comes with pressure to perform well at school, eventually to rise to stellar heights in professional life. And behind the whole edifice is the idea that in order to matter, you have to project the perfect life. And of course, so many of you, deep down, feel exactly like the woman in this story. You're terrified of people finding out the truth about you. The guilty little secret we all carry around is that we're all seriously flawed. So hear the gospel to this culture once again. It offers to change the story of your life, change it to a better story. You can be the person that Jesus healed. Instead of working as hard as you can to project some sort of a perfect life, you can admit that you're just ordinary and unexceptional and flawed. And what does that do? It will bring gratitude and contentment flowing into your life. Let me ask those of you under 25 this question. How many of your peers do you know whose lives radiate a sense of gratitude or a sense of contentment? Well, allow Christ to save you and those rare characteristics will show in your life. Gratitude is the most direct road to mental health. Now, I'm not saying that to induce guilt in those of you who struggle with anxiety, quite the reverse. But when you're able, just take a moment to practice the habit of being grateful. And in due time, that will lead to a quiet sense of contentment stealing like a forgotten old friend into your heart. So, we've thought about the gospel to people whose lives are chaotic, and then the gospel to people whose lives are full of anxiety. But what is the gospel? To circle back to our main point, what is the gospel to those who have rejected God's authority and now feel alienated from the universe in which they live? What do they think it would mean to come to God? Do they expect to be crushed by some cosmic transformer who snarls, kneel, or die at you? Well, for our final case study, let's read from Luke chapter 15. This is Pew Bible. 874. We're going to read 11 to 24, uh, because it's such a beautiful passage. uh, And we pray that God's own word will speak to you. The Lord Jesus is speaking, and he says in verse 11, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property among them. If you want to understand what God is like, then consider this story that the Lord Jesus told about the father of the prodigal son. Think about what was going on in the father's heart as he watched his son leave the family home, day after day, scanning the horizon, looking helplessly for some sign of a return. And then see that big-hearted, generous, forgiving benevolence when his son eventually does return. There is a deep hatred for the first person of the Trinity in our culture. Behind the arguments over patriarchal structures, a hatred of God the Father is evident. You can see it in the worship of Mother Earth or the renaming of God by radical feminists. And there's a very simple reason why people today resent God the Father. You see, we live in a world that has rejected truth. And here's what happens when you reject truth. All you're left with is power. And see what happens. You see, if I really believe that ultimately there is no truth, only power, then God becomes the ultimate oppressor. If I conceive of life as a struggle against a patriarchy, then I will view God the Father as the ultimate abuser of power. That's why so many people today feel alienated. By rejecting God's authority, they end up feeling thrown into the world, not at home within it. And what is the gospel to people like that? Well, the gospel must be to introduce them to the father that Jesus loved. So that they can then know themselves as a child of God, accepted and adopted into his family. So if you're not a Christian here tonight, first of all can I say you're really welcome. I'd love to talk with you afterwards. But if you're listening to me just now, I'd like you to imagine what it would be like to know God as your Father. Jettison all those lies you've been told about God as an egotistical, cosmic oppressor. The Lord Jesus has revealed to us that our Father in Heaven is kind and patient and scrupulously fair. You see, and knowing that we are accepted and adopted gives us a security right at the foundation of our personhood. So even if no one gets you, If you feel completely worthless and unlovable, you can know that you are loved by God. What a gospel we have. Instead of alienation, you can find acceptance. So we have looked at three case studies. The demoniac, the woman who touched the hem of the Lord's garment, and the prodigal son. So let's look at them together. Look at the demoniac sitting quietly at Jesus' feet, washed, dressed, and in his right mind. You are watching a real man who was rescued from an utterly chaotic life. And he was transformed to such an extent that his life reveals the beauty of an ordered life. That is a better story. Look at the woman who had tried to project a perfect life. And all she ended up with was a life haunted by anxiety. But see her transformed by Christ. Now we know her as the woman that Jesus healed. And that is a better story. Look at the prodigal son. When he was flush with money, his worldview made perfect sense to him. But it couldn't handle the realities of life. Couldn't handle suffering. So look at him. When he has reached the end of himself, deciding to trust in his father's innate generosity and fairness, he moves from alienation to acceptance, adopted into the father's family. And that is a better story. Perhaps I'm talking to someone tonight, and you have wounded yourself because you have rejected God's design plan for your life. Like Tony the Tiger, you're bleeding and hurt because you've tried to live as if you were self-existent, self-sufficient, and self-defining. For Tony, true freedom was to be as tigerish as he could be. For you, it is to be as human as you can be. And real human flourishing is defined in God's design plan for your life. In so doing... You can stop telling a story of chaos and anxiety and alienation. You don't need to live like chaff. You can be like that rooted, fruitful tree in Psalm 1. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is a better story. I began this talk by telling you a story about an academic who stood crying before me, saying, I am chaff. He said to me, I have to speak to you. He asked for my mobile phone number, and I gave it to him, of course, and we agreed to meet the next day across the room the man's wife was watching she looked pretty cold and angry as she walked across the crowded room took her husband by the arm and led him away I never heard from him again and today that man is dead the Christian life is the best way to live but please do not live here thinking, leave here thinking that I'm flogging a lifestyle choice like veganism or yoga classes the worldview you choose is deadly serious, not just for the present, but for the future. The ghastly belief system which prevails in our society will bring about its own destruction. Psalm 1 concludes with these words, The wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. On Friday night, I stood silently on Stormont Hill with 20,000 other citizens in protest at the heinous abortion laws that will soon be imposed upon Northern Ireland. Now it's possible that a woman is listening to me now who's had an abortion. My intention is not to focus guilt on you as an individual. God offers forgiveness and healing for all of us. My point is about the belief system which has gripped our society. What can you say about a society's worldview when women end up exulting in the freedom to kill their own unborn children? Think of the human potential lost, sacrificed on the altar, to the God called autonomy. When you think about it deeply, our culture's understanding of freedom is a madness, an insanity. It is not something in which anyone should take pride. It is a cruel God which slaughters and enslaves millions. One day, praise God, the great idol will fall. Its flimsy ideology will blow away like chaff. Only the truth will be left standing. And it is the certainty of that hope which allows the Christian to live a life of quiet confidence. So, Christian, I end with this. Go build a home which always honors your Lord. Delight in the design plan God has given for your living and for your family. Teach your children to live well-ordered lives, lives full of contentment and gratitude. Show them how to live secure lives, which can handle suffering and injustice, and in so doing. Let's just close in prayer. Our Father in Heaven, we thank you for the blessings of an ordinary life. Thank you that you want us to flourish. You want us to be creative. You want us to live the best life that a human can live. You're not an oppressor. You're not a restrictive killjoy. Any boundaries you give us are there to provide the security in which we can flourish. So we thank you for the blessings of an ordinary life. And Father, for those of us here who know and love you, we thank you for rescuing us and saving us from lives that were chaotic and full of chronic anxiety for, because we wanted to perform in order to matter and alienated lives where we rejected you and didn't even feel like this universe was our home. Thank you for saving us and bringing us into a relationship so that now we can look out at life with all its messiness and its complexity and we can say, as the Lord Jesus taught us to pray, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Father, as we close, we pray for any in our gathering who as yet do not know Christ as Savior and Lord, who perhaps are living lives that are chaotic, full of performance-driven anxiety, or alienation. Pray, Father, that whatever messy baggage exists in their past, that they would look to Christ and see what is ultimately real and valuable in life that they would come to that point where they would know that they are loved by God and they could end their alienation and their rebellion and accept you as authority over their lives knowing that you are kind and benevolent and that your rule over us is for our good not to oppress us and so we pray for any prodigals in the room this night that quietly in their hearts now they would come back to their father in heaven And no acceptance and adoption and forgiveness and cleansing and healing and hope. May I ask not you part us in your fear and with your blessing. In Jesus' name. Amen.